The eighth generation iPad may not be the sexiest new tablet on the block, but with a starting price of $329, it might be the one you're most likely to buy. So is it worth your money? I'm Roger Chang and this is your Daily Charge. With me is our iPad expert, Scott Stein. Welcome, Scott. Hey. So Scott, we had you on right after that September Apple event to share your impressions of all the announcements. And the 8th gen iPad was not the most exciting product mentioned. And, you know, we spent a little bit of time talking about it, but you spent a few weeks with it. Has your opinion changed? Are you, what are you feeling about it now? I think it's fine. You know, and I think that it is not a surprising iPad. This is an iPad that reminds me of last year's iPads because it practically is last year's iPads. The, uh, the iPad Air 2019 and the iPad Mini in 2019 had the same chip. The iPad Air and this had the same RAM. Uh, it, it, it's, it's basically that for less. Uh, there are some trade-offs here that are tiny. But uh, you know the iPad Air was more expensive. Now that's now that's no longer on the Apple Store. The iPad Mini is, but it's like a tiny bump up in price. So you know at three hundred twenty nine dollars, this gets in at a much more affordable proposition. The the iPad Air that's coming, uh, which is in, who knows when, probably in a couple of weeks, is more expensive. That starts at six hundred dollars. So it, it looks nicer. It looks like a less expensive Pro. But I think when you're talking about almost doubling the price. That uh, that really gets into a different territory for people. Yeah, definitely. And at three twenty nine, at least starting at three twenty nine, uh, it's obviously the most affordable option for someone looking for an iPad. U- ultimately, for you, I mean, who should be looking at this iPad as their sort of primary option? Yeah, well, I think if you think just think of an iPad as something to have lying around, to check email, to look at shows, to have one for your kid, this is that one. If you don't care about step-up bells and whistles. You don't want like a fancier toy. Uh, Not to call iPads toys. I think they're very useful. But I think that there is a point at which if you try to push an iPad to become your everyday computer, you're going to have what you call pain points. You know, you're going to have these difficulties that increase as you try to pro it out more. Uh, and, And I go to my laptop all the time because I need to. So, that's the thing about the Pro. It's got a lot of upsides that could be interesting, but you really have to map out whether that makes sense for you and if you want to think of it as like a, a fun thing for you. But the iPad is totally perfect at doing all that other stuff. That being said, uh, you know, you got to bump up from the 32 gigs of storage, I think. Uh, you know, that is too low an amount uh, for, for what you'd be paying for this if you want it to last a handful of years. And then you're talking about 429 Right, right. Which... Slightly changes the equation a bit. Uh, it does. And you talked about, you know, sort of kids using this, uh, and a lot of kids are obviously doing remote learning right now. You know, I've got a friend of mine who, you know, he told me when he offered his kid a Mac, a choice between a Mac and iPad, he actually chose the iPad. Uh, but is an iPad really geared for remote learning and for education? Now, I think the older you get, it's le- it's very non-suited for it. You know, we have a, a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old. Seven-year-old uses an iPad that we have around that we use for remote learning. Uh, it's suitable. I don't think it's great uh, for our 11-year-old. He uses a Chromebook. And I think that's what you'd absolutely need for the types of you know, work, work assignments you're doing, your editing stuff, et cetera. Now, iPads work with trackpads. And so there's like on, on the entry-level iPad, they don't, it doesn't have, this gets to accessories. Apple has a beautiful but very expensive Magic Keyboard that's like $300. There are different accessories for this entry iPad. There's a Logitech Combo Touch, which is a, still expensive. The $150 trackpad keyboard that I've been using with it. It's, it's kind of like a Surface with a kickstand uh, type layout. 
but it's good for turning it into a kind of a laptop. But the point is that you can edit, use the trackpad. You'd be surprised that it can do more than you think. But some web apps, some tools, uh, Google Drive works well with it now, but like some things don't. And you just don't, you know, whether you get to that point where you find a problem, especially with file storage, file maintenance, and Chromebooks are weird too, but they're much more like web tool type based. I think the iPad gets a little bit odder with that. Got it. And then the, I mean, look, the big difference here, as you said, is, is identical to last year's model. The big difference is the A12 processor. How big of a difference does that make? You know, I'm so used to seeing like, you know, standard new iPads and iPhones that it doesn't feel particularly special. But I think it's necessary to get up to speed with where iOS is going and where apps are going. The A10 processor was a couple of years old. It, it was feeling a little sluggish. The A12 is not like super zippy in comparison. It's it's basically fine. It gets to the like very good fine point. Um, so, I, you know, I could you use an A10 iPad? Totally. But I think it's getting to the point where you might not be able to use it so well in the future. But that gets to the point, and I don't think you need to upgrade to this one necessarily. If you have an iPad lying around that's working fine, you can probably keep using it. And this is like, you know, between this and last year's iPad entry upgrades, like last year they did the uh, works with pencil, works with the smart keyboard, made the screen a bit bigger. It adds up to like one set of upgrades. But this thing still uses lightning. It still has a home button. The bezels are kind of big. So for split screen apps, it's not ideal. Um, that's, the camera is a little less good than last year's iPad Air, but that's not the problem. It's that it's on the side. iPad cameras on the side, that kind of sucks because you know if you're doing zooms and things like that, your face is off center. And iPads have not really solved for that, and they should. But I don't know how long it's going to take for an iPad to have a side-mounted camera um, to address this. So just FYI, that's another thing now that we're doing everything over Zooms and remote. Right, right. And obviously, the iPad Air is coming out next month, really in a, probably a couple of weeks. We're not entirely sure. But you know, there are folks who are likely weighing the two. And I know they're very different propositions. But what advice would you give to folks who are looking at these two options and trying to figure out which one is right for them? Number one, think about whether you're really going to be using it for graphics work. Uh, if you think you're going to be using the pencil and, and drawing and, and doing some like, you know, taking advantage of interesting graphics tools, you're, you're an artist. I think the Air could have a lot of advantages. And you can use the first gen pencil on the other. The second gen pencil is more of a cosmetic thing, I think, with the side charging. It's a little more responsive, but the, uh, the display should be better. Um, it should be a little more color rich feeling um, than this iPad. It's a larger canvas. Um, the processor, we haven't tested the A14, but it should be considerably faster, more graphically powerful. The cameras, you know, are using the iPad as a camera, again, for for, tel for face conferencing and things, but your, your basic iPad is better than your, your laptop's camera. So, that's, it's the position of it. And uh, USB-C is really nice. That's just like a nice thing to have that's on the air and the pro. But I think like, you know, it's really about how much you're going to use that extra horsepower. I, I think the basic propositions of the, and also the larger screen real estate, if you're really going to split two apps side by side and be doing that all the time, there's an advantage to going with the air. I mean, it's a nice, it looks like a lot nicer device, but it, it better be because it's pushing pretty much twice the price. Plus the accessories. Yeah, yeah. We don't even talk about the accessories, but that they are costly. And uh, oftentimes, if you want to 
make it sort of a pro-level device, you kind of need some of those accessories. And that really changes the proposition of these things. Yeah, look, like if you're going to do the math on iPads, it's not $329 and $600. It's the iPad Air will cost you around 1000 and the iPad will cost you about 500 And you have to mentally set those aside in your mind. But that's a big leap. 1000 to 500 is a big a big leap. But if you bump up the price of the iPad, uh, the entry level to 429 and you think about getting a pencil, which is not included, or a keyboard case, which is not included, you just get the iPad and the charger. So that, that's a lot of stuff to add in. But you're going to do the same thing with the iPad Air, where you think about it comes with, I think, 64 base, and you might want to upgrade the 64 gigs of storage. And then once again, you're going to be going down, add a pencil, add a keyboard, and this is where the iPads really climb up. It would be nice if it included an accessory in the box, but that's just not what happens. It comes more like a blank slate. Um, so I, th I think just factor that in. So Scott, while I have you on, I wanted you to bring up this other story you wrote about face tracking VR, which is fascinating to me. Talk about the HP Omnicept. What is it? Yeah, so... Um, there, you know, Oculus Quest 2 is coming out and VR headsets are, are actually starting to gain in popularity. But those things don't track your face. They don't track your heart rate. What's interesting about what HP is doing is it's not going to be for people like us buying it. But it's for VR training. It's for, it's for companies and for people like, you know, if you're training to be a pilot or a doctor or, um, you know, looking at, you know, understanding a workload. They're incorporating this to... Track your eyes, track your pupils, track your heart rate, and track uh, your lips, and be, be able to study at first what's called cognitive load. So it's like how much your your body can can your, how much your mind can take on in a particular task. And the idea is that it'll start getting a better feedback on how we can work in environments, start training, maybe training you to be better at certain tasks, um, helping you get feedback. That's pretty wild to me. Um, so I think that was why it was fascinating. HP is releasing this in 2021. They have partners lined up. What's interesting to me is that they already have had Jeremy Balenson, who heads up Stanford's um, VR research lab, uh, founded the, their, their lab there. He's a really noted VR researcher and privacy advocate. So they said this is uh, you know GDPR compliant. This is like... Um, this is all going to be encrypted and, you know, it's going to be like kind of, it's going to be on the device, not on the device. It's going to be shared across, but not stored on the device. So anyway, read the story to get the full details on it. And of course we don't have it yet, but I thought that was really interesting because talking to Jeremy Balenson about it, he was saying that, you know, there's a lot of sensors, like things like that are on wearables that do promising things, but ha that haven't been proven out yet. And he said that the goal with this right now is to do a very proven out thing. He feels that um, cognitive load measuring is a very real and actually measurable thing that this does. So they're not going forward with theoreticals. They're going forward with something that in his lab he's been uh, proving out to be true. So I think that that's it's a very interesting doorway for like VR and training. But I think you I, then I wonder when is this going to start becoming stuff that we could do for fitness for health and, and, you know, you could get like wearables and VR headsets overlapping. I think that's going to start happening in the next few years. Interesting. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that all, like you said, overlaps, integrates with each other and really changes the experience, makes the, the VR experience a little bit more worthwhile. Uh, fascinating stuff. 
Thank you, Scott, for breaking down the new iPad and this, this concept of face tracking VR, heart pulse tracking VR. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting where this is all going. If you have any questions about these topics, hit us up on Twitter at The Daily Charge, and you can read all of Scott's coverage on CNET.com. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.